I think there's a lot of follow your dreams. And I see a lot of disappointed people. Do you believe in luck in a business sense? From what I understand, have rarely become successful through luck. As a young person, I was told to write, write down my goals. Do you want money? Do you want recognition in a certain field? Do you want you know, validation by your peers or by free press? Or do you want you know, a whole load of gratuitous people? What, decide what it is you want. But you can elaborate more if you'd like. What's this happening? <laughs> it's somebody who's literally worked their way out from a slum. And success to them is literally the difference between living and dying. And ambition holds a whole different value over there. So they will literally kill to succeed. I think you learn the most about yourself, one, when you get punched in the mouth, mm -hmm. and two, when you're absolutely physically exhausted. I've realized what I wanted to do for a while. I've only put pen to paper in the past six to 12 months. Now yeah. I'd say I'm doing what I really yeah. want to do, right? It, it's, but that's cool. That's 10 to I'm 30. Like, it's not the end of the mm. world. Like, no one wants to go through life by themselves. I can agree with you more. Favorite book? I haven't read one. Yeah, I, I thought you might say that. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Babylonia Media and our very first podcast series, The Entrepreneur's Experience. When they're starting off on their journey, entrepreneurs love being surrounded by other creative and energetic people working in flexible workspaces. So it's very appropriate that this series is sponsored by Spacemade. Spacemade transforms buildings to create enjoyable and immersive working spaces for entrepreneurs and remote workers alike. We in Babylonia have a space at one of the locations and have found it a great environment to work in. Spacemade has accessible workspaces throughout the UK. Check them out at www.spacemade.co. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Babylonia Media and another episode of the Entrepreneur's Experience with Ori Lesdor. He's the owner of Confetti Group and OJ Brands. Confetti Group uh, is focused on uh, mass markets with personal care products, in particular hair care, skin care and deodorant, which, which they supply across 20 markets, including Africa, the Gulf, India, Pakistan, and Asia. OJ Brand is a mid-market homeware brands business focused on fast-growing categories. Their primary product is Canny Sleep, that is right. Correct. Uh, um, of which they supply in over 2,000 stores in the UK and process over 5,000 orders a month online. You, uh, Ori, I'm going to start with one quick question, which is, you said that you feel the retail industry is particularly too sophisticated, oversaturated, and data-driven. Why is that? The retail industry. The retail industry. You did tell me that, right? I don't think I said it was too oversaturated. You said too sophisticated. The retail industry was too sophisticated. Your exact words were, you, talk, you said, I feel that the retail industry is too sophisticated, oversaturated, and too data-driven. To not use the information well, available. Well, at least as a statement. I'm just trying to find out why you said that. Ah. Okay. Is that wrong? Uh, I think or potentially. Would you, would, I think, would, you, would you rephrase it? I think I potentially say. you may have misconstrued what I what I meant to say or okay. meant. What um, did you mean? I think there's uh, there's too much data available for ego to get in the way of good decision making in business. Okay. And I think so, that, so, yeah. So if you could you so, yeah, yeah, that? absolutely. Um, so there is such a wealth of information available. Mm -hmm. That making good decisions in business is much less difficult than it used to be, and you oh, don't fine. need and you don't need a big, bullshit, opinionated business owner to make decisions anymore. So, if you have that ability to remove the ego from the decision making and use the information that's available at our fingertips, be it online or some of the super sophisticated systems they have that they used to operate, you know, um, goods in stores, supermarket, department stores, etc., um, we can make some really well-informed decisions. 
you know, without the need for any ego uh, at all. So I, I was wrong in the fact you actually think the data is the good part, essentially. Is that I think data is the most phenomenal part. Yeah. And, and that you, should, you think that should be almost solely the decision. Don't, don't have any ego. Not solely. I think that in, in the sense of like, yeah, like you said, don't be too catch on to one idea and think, oh, that's it. That has to be right. It's, it's, it's my gut feeling. Listen, I think in business, good business people typically have an innate, uh, you know, they have a vision. Um, they have a great connection with a, with a category. Um, I don't think it's to say that data should uh, overrule everything because I do think intuition plays a large part as well. But I think that if that can be supported by you know, as much data as possible, really, uh, without wasting too much time on it and, you know, trying to be over-calculating these things, um, I think, you know, don't let ego overrule good decision-making. Okay. Um, can I say something? I yeah, know you're, you're interviewing me, yeah, but yeah. I actually really like you in this setting. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I, you. I actually <laughs> think you always should have been in entertainment. Because well, we've crossed paths in various settings. Yeah, we have. You've let me into nightclubs. You've passed me rugby ball. I have. But actually, I'd say this setting suits you the best of them all. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That's. It feels like you always should have been here. That's well. That's very nice of you to say. I mean, like like I said to you previously, uh, the reason why I wanted to do this is essentially because I've always had an interest in TV and radio, and I think thought potentially I could be good at it, perhaps because of the skill set, and this is a chance to do it myself. So. So yeah, I appreciate you saying that, mate. Um, you, you look like it's you're going to make it work. Okay. For whatever that's worth. It, okay. Well, you know, at the right time, maybe we'll join forces. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe. We won't. We won't talk about that on camera, but we will afterwards. Okay, we'll um, go to the numbers later. Um, emerging markets. You said yes. you, you said you're fascinated in emerging in emerging markets, and I think that's in part because of what you did early, earlier on in your career. But I guess first, could we start with <coughs> why you're so fascinated in emerging markets and maybe how you got to that? Yeah. So um, I grew up. Uh, I skipped uni, uh, became a salesman at a young age, uh, was working uh, well, principally for a company called Pentland, who at the time owned Lacoste and Reebok. Uh, I worked for Neither. Um, I was put in charge of a, a premium women's denim account and made to do denim trainings on the shop floor in Harrods and Topshop. Best training you could possibly get um, is trying to show women how best to wear denim. Um, Coming from a guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. In any case, um, grew within that company, did all right, uh, hopped about there working in various sales positions, realized that I loved sales, but realized that the UK was a very saturated market um, and had this, I think it was from an Attenborough documentary or something, and I saw they were filming in India, and I just thought, how many people there are? How much opportunity must exist in that place? And I thought, listen, I want to go work there, and a friend's family happened to own a business that was focused on sort of emerging markets across Africa and India, and had a head office out in Dubai, so I went and interviewed, uh, got a job out there as a salesman, Ended up being sales director out there for a division that looked after about 400 distributors in India. Um, so ended up working out there for a few years, traveling to the most insane places uh, across India, um, just seeing things I never would have otherwise seen, realizing there was indeed that much opportunity. Um, and um, that company sold two or three years after I joined them, uh, and I got a small pay pack and a handshake. Um, myself and my boss at the time actually set up together a licensing and distribution business bringing Western brands into the emerging markets. So, so, so on a licensing basis, so we didn't own product, they'd yeah. funnel product through us and we'd make our piece. Di I guess just distribution. Exactly, essentially. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Built that up, sold it, and then ended up building brands of our own. And could you tell us a bit more about your sort of that early journey of, you know, going to this company in Dubai, and then I know you told me in, in brief you were traveling across India, mm. trying to sell sort of, 
product products. I mean, that sounded crazy. And Talcum powder and soap. Oh, really? Correct. <laughs> and that, that literally you went across the whole of India doing that. Yeah. Was it a whole different realization of what I guess? Maybe it's cliche to say, but you see that, that what people are coming from there, and you just think, Jesus Christ, okay, now, now I've really got a battle. Was that that must have been a massive realization? Hundred percent. And and I get I, I, I guess think, I guess what would you could you pinpoint what you really learned from that? I think as a young salesperson, so I think the thing about being a great salesperson, in my opinion, is you got to be bullish, you got to back yourself, and you got to be prepared to be told no a thousand times just to get that one yes. Yeah. A lot of people don't have the staying power. And I backed myself, and I knew I was super ambitious, um, and I sort of backed myself to do well, whatever happened, whether it was in sales or anything else. And I think that ambition was put into perspective when I went to the emerging markets, when I thought, bring it on, I'll have anyone sort of mentality. And your your competition isn't, you know, uh, a great salesman from the Midlands. It's somebody who's literally worked their way out from a slum. And success to them is literally the difference between living and dying. And ambition holds a whole different value over there. So they will literally kill to succeed. And it put my ambition into perspective, made me not realize I was less ambitious, but that there were people much more ambitious than me. And to compete in that arena, I had to up my game in a number of different ways. And the drivers that I use that get me out of bed in the morning, that kind of push me to go do what I do, became different. And in some cases, a little bit destructive. There's a lot of negative drivers out there that drive. So people are unbelievable. And I'd say that was probably the biggest part of the learning curve is realizing, listen, you're not in the safety of kind of, you know, Great Britain and all the, the safety nets that it has there in terms of infrastructure, people, policing, everything. You're now kind of in the, in the wild east and if you want to compete, you've really, you know, you've got to have teeth as big as theirs. You know, there's a saying that it's not the size of the dog in the fight. Yes, yeah, Mark Twain. Yeah. Size of the fight and the dog. Yeah, yeah, great. yeah it's very, very, very true. Um, you, said, you said just now that, um, I guess, the, the reasons what get you up in the morning were much different once you, once you went out there. Could you, could you elaborate on that a little bit more? And, and, and <clears throat> I'd leave it at that to start, yeah. No, it's a good question. I've long been of the opinion that you've got to pick your objectives, right? I was always told at a young age, I can't remember by who, to write down what you want to be and what you want to do yeah. in your life. Write down your goals. So you have something to measure yourself against as you kind of, as you grow and move through life. I've always done that and I've always, I've always given myself very strict, fixed goals to work towards. But, and you're talking very young, like teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. Remind me the question again. But just just saying, there was a whole there, there's a whole different level of I guess ADHD. Drive. By the way, you have to remind me halfway. Through. Yeah, no, that's fine. We'll talk about his ADHD afterwards. But you were you were talking very much in particular about the fact that when you went to India, and uh, and what you realised as a result, your your drive in the morning now is a much different level of I get uh, compared to what it was before. What drives mm. you is, is different. It's different. Yeah, it's yeah, real yeah, different yeah, avenues yeah, that really yeah, push yeah. push you that way. What? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted you to elaborate on that to really understand because I know some people have. More obvious ones are like competition, whatever it is, but it sounds to me like there's, there's more layers to that. Yeah, no, there is. Um, I think that being brutally honest, um, success for me was about money. It was never about recognition, validation from someone else, a nice article being written, a fluffy TV piece. It's never been about that. Mm -hmm. I've had very strict financial objectives for, for various reasons. Um, and I think that 
it made me realize going out there that there are lots of people who had those ambitions and that was the arena I was now in. And whilst those today haven't changed so much, I definitely think it, you know, when you're young and you're trying to find an identity, especially in the, in the business world and win the respect off peers and competitors and whatnot, um, you can get a little bit lost in, in seeking that recognition and validation. I think that's probably something a lot of young people experience, uh, yeah, whether in business that. or anything else, yeah. whether, you know, whatever, whatever field or arena you're in. Um, but I definitely think it made me realize that <clears throat> I had to pick a goal and draw a straight line between where I was then and where I wanted to go and uh, really focus me, not necessarily in positive ways. I mentioned there were potentially some well, that, negative that, aspects of that. That's what I was interested in as well. What, what, what I definitely think that <clears throat> um, if you're too focused, um, you can become quite narrow as a person. Um, and I think that you can block out some of the other important building blocks um, that other people may take more seriously. You know, work became potentially too much of an important part of my life. Money became too important. Um, and lack of, lack, lack of focus on the human part of life. 100%. 100%. And it was, at, it, it was probably, until I got married when I was 28, it was probably only till I got back together with my now wife, Sadie, that I realised that I was missing big parts of the, the human component and that I had been so focused and people probably thought that I was a jerk because of it or whatever. I don't really give a fuck, but, you know, because I wouldn't have achieved what I did if I hadn't been focused. Yeah, yeah, but it made me realise, it put into context actually, you know, who I was becoming as a person and I've managed to rein in some of those things and open myself up to developing those things, although that is a work in progress. Yeah, so, well, we, always, we always ask. Well, so you think... For a while, you felt you, you had to be deeply uncompromising and dogged, determined within the business, and that all else mattered. Whereas now, you start to realise that a lot of the human variables to your life actually not only are important to you, but actually will probably make you a more efficient, better person within the business sense. A hundred percent. So, I'll use this interview as an example. When I went into a sales pitch before, I would talk much more than I would listen. Mm. And actually, somebody else you interviewed talked about this. Yeah, yeah. One guy, he said he, that's how he started. And you'd bite their head off. Yeah almost through fear that you're asked something you don't know because you've prepared so much for that pitch. Sure. You want it so badly. But in doing that, you are so clearly unprepared and it becomes so visible to the person you're talking to, whether in an interview or in a retail pitch to a panel of buyers, that you overcook it. And if there's anything I'd say I've learned about that in terms of, you know, wanting it so much and just so focused is that you don't listen and expose yourself to potential weakness. You're not patient. You're all the opposite of all those things. So even in you asking me a question, I listen, I think about how that question makes me feel and I answer a lot more honestly. Yeah, and I'd say that's not just something sales specific. I would say that's just a human reactionary kind of behavioral improvement that I've experienced as a result of I'm coming back into the normal world, moving back to the Western world, yeah, yeah. getting married, being part of a relationship and understanding more about myself um, and exposing myself to, you know, those vulnerabilities. It's actually, are you learning much more about yourself going through the process that way than I did when I was here? Buy my product, da, 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 can we have say, buy, you yeah. know? And I'm probably more successful as a result. Yeah, no, I, t I totally agree. I um, It's interesting you say that about... Because in particular, for whatever reason, that reminded me of the fact that you, 
And when we were talking before, and I think you wrote this in an email to me, you said, I, I, I realised I was never going to be the smartest person in the room, but I would, I would do whatever necessary to get there. Mm. I guess that was that was the driving, that, that second part about do whatever's necessary to get there, or like be, the most, be one of the most successful, financially successful. Was that the only difference is now what it's, it's so more rounded and you know whatever the bigger picture is, there's so many more variables to it than just, just, just bottom line profit? 100%. 100%. I, I would say that I have a much more holistic and rounded understanding of, um, you know, what I want out of it. I mean, I know lots of people for whom the commercial objectives are the only things that matter. But, but sorry to interject, interject there, but you, you've also told me in the past that, um, I'm not trying to like, overhold you to certain words. But overhold me. Okay, okay, I will then. You told me in the past that to suck, it, it, you are still quite bottom line driven, but... I guess what the difference now is it's not just profits, it's like high quality products in, in, the, in the right space. Is that, is that the real differentiating, well, differentiating there's two, Okay, fine. There's two, there's two parts to that question, I think. Two things that I'll say. One is, I think to be a business owner, you have to be driven by a bottom line of some kind. It'd be impossible to think you're going to build a big business and not think about its financial viability or success. Yeah. But I definitely say that I make much more considered decisions in terms of... Um, everything from hiring, product quality, spending more on some of the areas where, you know, I don't need to. Um, you know, I'm a salesman. I'm, I'm not qualified with a degree or anything. Um, I've learned, you know, I've come up differently. Um, and for that reason, I, I, I see a lot of value and I, and I very quickly pick up on good salespeople. And many of them are unqualified, as you know. And wherever I can, I try and make room for them in my business to hire them because I know they possess something a little bit different. And sales, as you'll know, is the most valuable part of any business. So in terms of the human element, even if I can't afford a great salesperson, if I see someone and I get that energy, I try and make room for them. And, and, and just in that same vein, anyone who gets ahead in life, I think should turn around and try and help someone else up. Yeah, I totally So agree. I would say I would be prepared to compromise bottom line knowing that I've given someone the opportunity to go and do really well and build something for themselves. Yeah. Knowing ultimately, yes, it kind of benefits. Yeah, there's some kind of shared. Ultimately, yes, it does benefit the business. But I'm saying I'm not as shrewd in my decision making as I might have been if I was of the same mindset I was. It's, it's, it's not as single-minded. Correct. And um, I think I think there was a, there was another half to that question in terms of in terms of kind of bottom line decision making is, but I sort of probably answered it. Well, you know, no, I did. I think you're pretty on point with it. If I'm honest, you, but you can elaborate more if you'd like. What's has happened? <laughs> um, tell us. Just a bit more, a bit more about the structure of the two companies, and I did a very brief sort of description. But OJ Brands and Confetti Group. So, Correct. what are they, and what and what are they do? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, sorry. <clears throat> Take your time. Um, some water. No, no, my cheers. So, OJ Brands is our UK-based, privately owned business, which owns Homewares Brands. Um, which includes calisleep.com, which is principally an online business but focused on the orthopedic sleep space um, and is a growing portfolio of brands focused on um, some of the more sort of I'd say more mature areas or developed areas of uh, homewares mm -hmm. um, and then we've got Confetti Group which is based in the UAE uh, again it's a privately owned entity we have a benefit with free zone um, companies there which can be internationally foreign owned 100% no need for local partners uh, which owns a, a growing hand for the brands focused on personal care that's the older of the two that owns our deodorant business skincare hair care we have a trading business within it and 
we supply about 20 export markets uh, from there. Um, but both wholly owned um, private entities, uh, each with their various kind of respective uh, shareholder groups. And have, well, actually, I'm going to quote, quote something again from, from an article, but I read an article that you essentially, in 2016, you said within five years you want to be in, in 20 plus countries, primarily for uh, f female products in, within the care space, especially in uh, Africa, Asia, and all these continents. Mm -hmm. uh, would you say you're more or less there? Have you, have you achieved that target? Yeah. And I get, it's a simple answer in one way, but what were the fundamentals to getting there? And, I, and what I mean by that is, I think it's very important for people to li listening to this, how in very simple terms you talked about writing stuff down, what, what, what are these fundamentals that you think get, get you to that place alongside, alongside your drive, actual categorical, very <coughs> distinctive, so, rigid, rigid things you have to do to... Yeah, yeah. No, I think I understand the question. So I think it's important to note that I don't, you know, I never had a vision for a product we were gonna sell. Um, I was never passionate specifically about any one category. Um, but I did, I was, you know, super interested in, in retail and I kind of studied categories and I sort of honed in on gaps in the market where I thought, you know, there's potentially something interesting there, we can interest something at that price point. Um, you know, this category is lacking this option. Um, and then we kind of worked it backwards from there to a product. So that was very much the case with Confetti Group in the emerging markets where um, I'd previously been selling personal care products. Uh, and so I was walking the supermarkets from like, you know, one in the middle of India to in the Gulf and Africa. Um, and I noticed that people were prepared to, to pay a premium to own good quality fragrance. <clears throat> and so much of what was available in the market was kind of generic shit. And we thought, right, we still have to hit our price point. We knew that we couldn't get, we couldn't retail for over $2.50 US, for example, but I wanted French fragrance in the cans. And so we thought, right, but we know we have to do X volume to be able to bring in premium fragrance from France. And, and so that's how we sort of modeled out the business. So um, it was about, for me, it was about making sure we nailed the price point. We nailed the proposition. So we had a great product, but if we nailed the price point, the, the, the markets we could open would be limitless. Um, and that's sort of how the first brand was launched. Um, and uh, once we'd opened sort of 15, 20 markets, those same distributors trusted us to give them good product. We had lots of feedback coming in that we need this soap, we need this hair removal product, we need it. And that's how we built the business, was catering to the existing demand, as opposed to kind of waking up and going, oh, I've got a great idea for a deodorant brand, and going to try and launch it. We kind of we said, what does the market need? And we went back, created it, and then put it back in. Do, do you think you recognise that even in under economic, economically sort of uh, developed areas, there was still a need for certain... Not high end products, but that that sort of middle end product with regards to to, to skincare, hair care, and that sort of thing. And that's and that's why you you chose it because I guess when you went around India, my point would be is even someone who's particularly poor, that I guess maybe ladies or whatever, they still ha have a decent care for their hair or skin or whatever, yeah. regardless. And that Correct. you think that really really fit. Correct. Well, certainly you mentioned India. I mean, they're very hygienic, so they're very kind of self aware. Um, and on top of that, there's a very fast growing middle class there. Um, and there's, I mean, you, you only have to walk around to see that there's clearly a, a kind of that aspirational um, energy. Uh, a lot of people there looking to kind of improve their lives. And, you know, first thing you do is buy, you know, a toothbrush or a toothpaste and then you get a slightly better toothpaste. You buy, you know, 
a bar of soap there historically was used to wash your clothes and wash your skin and everything else mm-hmm. and now people want a body wash and you know so uh, and fragrance is quite an interesting one because uh, you probably don't know but uh, fragrance will trigger a memory much faster than anything else so smell is actually yes yeah, smell is a big memory trigger amazing, yeah, for sure. amazing so um we work with big fragrance houses in france and mm-hmm. all the psychology behind the fragrances uh, women are under celebrated um notorious in a number of these markets sadly um, and we thought it's an amazing opportunity to kind of uplift you know females give them fragrances which sort of celebrate their individuality so they've got a big range of fragrances they can choose from they're very affordable one two dollar fragrances mm-hmm. um, but we put you know very high concentrations in and people seem to be enjoying them you know move many millions a month well uh, sorry just, i'm gonna go on a tangent a bit but why why caddy sleep why, why sleep products um so again my sort of the way the way that i conceive brands doesn't really change i sort of do my homework on the categories in the case of sleep i walked uh, the sleep department of pretty well one of every retailer so i went and walked about 20 stores in a day all the bedding departments be it you know well, i won't mention names but sort of john lewis or self or harris or whoever um and i was looking at the overwhelming amount of product so you've got got a huge amount of product at a range of price points from sort of 10 pounds to a thousand pounds mattresses mattress toppers duvets pillows and a whole other range of sleep accessories there's hungarian goose feathers hollow fiber bounce back deep sleep is, is it driven by comfort price just in what i'm telling you you're probably overwhelmed because i was yeah. walking there so how do people shop sleep so i'm talking to the salesman on the shop floor and they go well i tell them that this is a really comfortable pillow i'm going okay but uh, you know, consumers over a period of time build up a palette for product and they can make informed decisions whether they know or not about quality versus price. And it just appeared that sleep was lacking that entirely. So I almost felt like we today are no wiser about sleep than we might have been 20 years ago. Yeah. How do people shop sleep? Real, real need for simplicity, really, to some extent. Massively. So I thought at that point I had I didn't know what we were going to do. I just knew this is a this is a, a you know an overpopulated category, mm-hmm. clearly a massive in terms of value every year. Talking to the buyers, they move you know millions of units every month. But I've never I, I couldn't name a sleep brand. So I knew sort of at the top end we had Temper, that was sort of 130 pound price points I found out. Mm. And then you've got go on Amazon, you've got loads of generic stuff at around 10, 20 pounds, and then nothing in the middle. Talking to the everyday consumer. And definitely nothing educating the consumer. So I thought, right, let's look at that 30, 60 price bracket, same way that I do with the deodorant. And I thought, how can we educate the sleeper? Right. So whilst this was going on, my wife was pregnant with our first child and she was sleeping with a pregnancy pillow, which is sort of like a body pillow. And I nicked it. I'm a terrible sleeper, horrible insomniac, borrowed her pillow one night. I've never had a better sleep. So I thought, so I've got all these thoughts about the sleep space and I've slept with her body pillow and then suddenly light bulb moment, I'm like, I've got to figure out, is this technology or whatever it is applicable to the mass market? Because I haven't seen them for sale anywhere. Mm-hmm. Went and saw an osteo, um, a Cairo, physio, uh, ended up going to see a mental um, health expert, went and saw a GP, put together this panel, said, right, we're reinventing the body pillow. Because I knew at that point that was going to be a hook product because I didn't have to do a lot to excite a bedding buyer given how boring and overwhelming their, their bedding department so I said at least I can talk about that product and then we can see that that resonated with a few buyers we've got a few stores we went away used that same expert panel which is still on the board today um, 
to conceive about 25 other products addressing everything from sleep apnea um, right the way through to anxiety. We've got weighted anxiety blankets. The journey we take people on, Cali Sleep, through our website and in store, helps you learn more about yourself as a sleeper. So you can, you can do a very quick sleep quiz and it'll tell you, yeah, I'm a side sleeper, I'm a back sleeper, I'm a front sleeper, I've got neck pain, I've got a snoring problem, I suffer with anxiety. And within 30 seconds, we lead you to a product which genuinely works and addresses your issue. So essentially, we cater for the most popular uh, you know, needs in sleep. Not you know, reinventing the wheel, we're not putting rockets in space, but we're helping people understand a little bit more about themselves as a sleeper and engaging with product at prices they can afford. Enough, enough to make a difference, I guess, but not overdo it so you're tracking people's sleep with a ring and all this sort of thing. There's lots of sleep technology out there. That's not to say we're not looking at it and won't introduce it in due course, but at the moment we're having a really good run with these sort of 30, 40 products we've got, um, and we're working with you know, the UK's leading retailers, um, and uh, at the moment we're just trying to finesse that proposition mm-hmm. um, before we kind of start investing heavily in other categories, although they are in the pipeline. And you seem to be obsessed with that mid-range product pr- price. Is that because much, I guess much like say fast fashion where it's so cheap that's, that seems to be dying people have enough of it. Is it, is it similar, I guess, par- par- parallel analysis on that point of view? So it's a good question. I think, I think deep down I was, I, I never liked to not be able to afford something. Um, I always wanted something that, you know, when I saw it and I liked that, I wanted it then. And I think that there is, you know, we're playing on that kind of impulsion in consumer as much as we are, you know, we're affordable year round. So there's kind of two, it's two prong. It's we want your repeat business because we're affordable enough for you to buy us a few times. Moreover, our core customer at Cali Sleep is a woman. So she may buy a product for herself first, we hope, and then maybe buy one for a partner or a child. Um, So there's that. And then there's just a general affordability, you know, as a, for anyone. So that if someone, but bear in mind, we, we want Cali Sleep to be the first sleep purchase someone has ever made. And when I say first sleep purchase, people may have bought mattresses and pillows and duvets, but a lot of people haven't, they're pretty thoughtless decisions. Yes, it's not, it's not considered. It's the first considered yeah. decision yeah, yeah, yeah. that someone has made in sleep. With brands, I think one of the most important things is that potentially the start of a lifelong relationship with a consumer. Mm-hmm. And so if that first engagement is a good one, you have the opportunity as a, as a brand owner to engage that person for life. That's quite a powerful thing. Yeah, completely. So if I can not only deliver you a good proposition that works and helps with your sleep problem, but I've done it at a price that you think is really good value. Yeah, particularly justifiable, I think. Yeah. Not only you drive and repeat business, mm-hmm. you're instilling positivity in the mind of the consumer so they won't see you again. When I, when I hit you up with my edibles and my sleep tech next year, you probably have a greater propensity or greater chance, rather, of engaging. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree on that. And when you're talking like that, I, I think I mentioned this to you before, but I, I really get the impression you've got a great understanding or instinct of, of, of consumer psychology. Do you, could you break that down? And, what, and if I could elaborate on that, do, do you really think... You obviously break down your thought process when you buy something. Mm. You think that's incredibly important if you want to understand retail. Do you know what? There's two schools of thought. I meet people who are just straight visionaries, who do very little homework, don't really do any data analysis, and smash it with every product they introduce. And I've never been that, I've never been that guy. But when I don't do my homework, I tend to fail the exam. Yeah. 
So, or, or don't turn up to the exam. And this kind of goes back <laughs> to my, you know, there's so much data available. Why are people using it? It's yeah, not yeah, about yeah. what Ori thinks. It's just let the market tell you and, you know, you service that, mm. you know, requirement. Um, there's definitely a, t you know, 10, 20% I think considered I think, analysis that's purely you, really. I, I think I definitely have some kind of, um, I'd say I'm good at honing in on thresholds within retail pricing above and below which people have a sort of a, a high propensity to, to transact. Mm -hmm. So I do quite quickly hone on, hone in on opportunities within categories. If I do my homework on a category, I guess I've been blessed with something that kind of leads me to biting points within the price parameters of that category. So I would say in some, in, in some sense, I definitely feel a connection with retail. I wouldn't say, um, I wouldn't say it's something totally unique to me. There are lots of people who have it. And to some people it comes completely naturally. I definitely have to do my homework to kind of prove my theory correct. I definitely am not the guy who wakes up and, you know, is you Elon Musk. believe in, 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 <laughs> yeah, in heavy preparation. I would say heavy preparation, but I would say I don't, I, I don't run into these things thinking this is a knockout product. This is the price it's going to be at. I, I, like I said, the market guides me as an operator. I've, I've, I, look at the, I look at what the market has and I work backwards to a product. Uh, I can, uh, and as long as I understand kind of the, the broadly the, the price range that people are engaging at today, um, I can kind of make my own assumptions within that kind of okay. spot gaps. Okay. Um, no, I, I totally get what you mean then. And with obviously touching on retail, so I think it brings me on to a point that I think is quite important, especially I think I'd like to hear your, pers your perspective on it. There's a lot of talk in the UK at the moment, in the UK at the moment about where, where retail is going. Mm. Would you mind giving us sort of your overall overall opinion on it mm. and, and, and where you see it? Hundred percent. It's a good question. Again, you've got good questions. Hey, listen. Like you said, I'm at home. I'm at home so I can think. You're at home. Um, I think that retail will always exist as a very important part of the overall consumer experience. Um, I think that it will always have a place on our high street it will probably become increasingly experiential um, but will nonetheless be a crucial touch point in someone buying a product I don't think people are going to be walking down high streets holding bags you know clambering onto a bus uh, for, for much longer um, but if they're touching and engaging a product on a high street and buy it online it still forms a very important part of that process so I think we're heading that way I think the last eight months since COVID hit has kind of sped that up um, but I don't really see it going anywhere. I think that the, the key to survival will be nailing hybrid or nailing omnichannel um, and having an amazing e-com infrastructure what, what, what to support. Mean, what do you mean more specific, uh, exactly about when you say hybrid? Um, hybrid means uh, delivering business online and offline. So whether it be through kind of how we do through other people's stores or owning stores yourself. Um, and a, a hybrid would be operating both in stores and through uh, websites your own or dropship websites and and that's i guess what you want to do you in it, it i mean that is what we do do that i mean okay so next do, level, do, do, next, do. Level, <laughs> next level up from that what the bigger proposition for you would to be have your have your own stores alongside a lot of online um i would say long term i would love to own something with a national footprint i would love to be in charge of that last mile bringing that experience to the customer mm -hmm. at the moment i'm limited to just a website because we sell through John Lewis and Benson's. And although we do some great kind of POS in store stuff, 
we've got pillow bars that kind of you know have side sleeper front sleeper back sleeper and you can kind of go through that journey in store i don't really control it because i'm at the mercy of what the store wants it to look like or the space they want it to fit into mm-hmm. i would love to control some space and have like lots of stores across the country but at the moment we're doing hybrid as uh, as well as we can selling through other people's stores and through uh, a series of websites either that we own or that we work through when you talk about stores are you are you comparing to your likes of john lewis is that is that the the, the true vision or, or you, would you hone it on on lots of more small stores like a I don't know, like a body shop or something. Well, I'm like a huge fan of John Lewis. <laughs> I actually do most of my shopping at John Lewis. Okay. So for me, that's kind of a, that's kind of a day out. But I mean, it's just it's such an array of different products. It is. It goes back to your other. It goes back to your other question, which is that shopping is actually a day out for lots of people. Yeah. So, in that sense, I'd love to own a John Lewis and have a crash in it and a amazing coffee shop. Fuck, we have a vodka bar. We have a club upstairs. You know, everything. For the dads while they're waiting. Yeah, yeah. But that's what I'm so in terms of experience, I would love to have like an extravaganza like that. Yeah. And I'd love to have them across the country. Yeah. In fact, I wish I wasn't a little further along in my career now, wasn't buying up one of the, you know, the, the, the national retailers that are unfortunately going under and being able to do that now. But mm. So so that when you when we like you said when we talked about the future of retail, that's the point is that you don't see people uh, giving up the an actual experience forever. That that that, that, that human I th- in, in a, innate sort of test the product out, like you said, meet people, talk to them about it, that sort of thing. I am bullish on the high street. It just the dynamics change. The problem is retail today, real estate is such a huge line item and it eats so much into their you know their bottom line mm. that it's very hard to survive. And it's not the fault of the you know the, the, the realtor or the landlord. It just is. You know, to, to, to secure yourself a high footfall, you know, retail space, you have to pay the rents to be there. But people are now seeing that it can be done differently. And I think rents will adjust to accommodate for that. People aren't doing as much business through their store. They can't then be asked to pay the same level of rent. Or maybe stores will, you know, move or they'll transform into something different. I don't know what that is. But I definitely, I know for certain the retail's here to stay. I think we love retail. Um, I think as a young person going to a sweet shop or a, a, an older person going and making, you know, me buying prams or whatever shit I buy. Do you know what I mean? The sort of things I'm buying in my life at the moment, less exciting things. But, so these, these, these people who say, oh, it's, it's completely dead, you just, you just don't buy that at all. It's, 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 it's rubbish to you. I just think these things work in cycles and it's mm. only so long. I mean, how, bo- how quickly did you get bored of Zoom quizzes or yeah, talking yeah, to your yeah, family yeah, you on Zoom? That, yeah, it's, 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 it's one of the reasons why I even, when I started this business recently, the, six months ago or whatever, and I was working from home. Half the reason why I even came to, to an office space was simply because I had to be amongst right. it. And it's, it's the same psychology there, I think. I think after a, after a while, it's numbing. And humans are built to engage physically. And, you know, what we're doing now, we couldn't replicate this on a, uh, over a screen. Yeah, it's, it's We just true. couldn't. When I people couldn't. ask me, can I do a remote interview? I normally say no, because I just don't think it's the same thing. And, I, you know, with your hand movement, you can't convey yourself and you're just like... Just your comportment is completely different when you're behind the screen. Mm-hmm. The way we engage with each other is, is totally different. And for that reason, and I'm not, it's not just, you know, yeah, we bang on about retail here, but it's not just about retail, it's about everything. Whether you're going to, a, you know, a cinema or a theme park or going for a date or going for a swim or whatever, these are all physical things. And I think the, the world is built around that kind of physical activity, yeah. um, be it at the extreme level or the mundane. And for that reason, I think that retail will transform. Um, and people won't be carrying shopping bags around, but it will be, it will still be as important a touch point in a transaction. Yeah. 
Um, no, it's, just, it's making me think about something else, but we're, we're going to move on slightly. Do you believe in luck in a business sense? <laughs> so I believe you make your own luck, but I would definitely, th- uh, I would definitely say that there's luck involved. I think that you can position yourself to be lucky. Um, you know, I'm, a, uh, I'm sort of a believer in um, hard work is so often the answer. The question is so often irrelevant. Yeah. Is that a bit cheesy? But no, no, no. I just think, I just like, think it's, that it's, the people I know... cheesy or not, it's The right. people within my sphere of influence, yeah. who I look up to, or people that are, you know, have become successful, from what I understand, have rarely become successful through luck. Much more what I mean. I, I read a quote the other day, which was basically, "I don't believe." In, I can't remember who said it, but it was, "I don't believe in luck. It's preparation meeting opportunity." Essentially, hundred percent. I mean, you've got to be poised, ready to capitalize on those opportunities as they come your way, and you've got to keep your head in the game. If you're not in the game, you wouldn't know an opportunity that came by. Mm. So I think that it's, yeah, it's probably this. This it's the same thing. And um, would you? How would I ask this? Would you say you have like a core set? philosophies or principles within your, your your drive forward when you work and what I mean by that is I I personally have three or four things that really matter, matter to me with the way I work, work and what I intend to do with regards to elements of what I offer on an almost educational and informative basis in the content these sort of things is there anything you could, you could pinpoint there the reason why I ask that is because I think it's so important especially when younger like some more, more people who are trying to aspire to be business people I think it's very which uh, it's funny you, you say you have ADHD because I do actually think you break down your thoughts quite well, which is very interesting. Is there any, any way you, could, you you're welcome. You're, I'll give you a pat on the back after. Um, but could you could you break down so, something like that for us? And take your time to think about that, obviously. So I'm not particularly philosophical, although I do like quotes by philosophers. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that for me, uh, work ethic comes before anything. Um, and I think if you can instill a good work ethic in whatever it is you do, you stand a much higher chance of becoming successful. And successful can be measured in lots of different ways. It's not necessarily financial. Probably that's one of many different uh, ways one can become successful. It's, it's ultimately it's subjective. Um, thinking about no, 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 take your time. Take your time. It's it's. I I I mean. If I could lead you to maybe another example, it, I personally find that my my life, and I've touched this before, my life outside of work filters so much into the way I go about my work. So like, mm. that's everything from exercise to my, my general principles on, to be honest, how I treat people. Mm. I don't know if there's anything that, that you could align with on that. I'm trying to connect the two in my head. They're not, no, no, no. They're not connecting. <laughs> um, <laughs> listen, no, listen it's, not, it's not for everyone that question, yeah, if I'm honest. No, 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 but, no, no, I just, no, no, but I'm I, curious. I, Can you I, give me a second? I, I want to give yeah, you no, absolutely. absolutely. Take your time. Actually, if you want. I think that. Go on. I was told, I think I mentioned to you that as a young person, I was told to write, write down my goals. Mm-hmm. And it's been a really useful practice for me. It doesn't work for everyone. But at least it gives you something to, to measure your progress against. Walking in dark, you wouldn't know if you what direction you're going without a few little kind of lights placed along the way somewhere, just to make sure you're you're heading the right way. And so every once in a while I check in with my goals. I still write my goals down and they change and they you know and the course changes, but I always write my goals down. And that's kind of helped me navigate my way through life, my career, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's not a philosophical method. No, but it's a principle that really but it's a, helps. But, but it's a but it, it's, it's a something I do that underpins you. everything everything that I do. Yeah, I'd say obviously one of those things was financial success, but what that now means to me in the context of my life. When I was young, I thought that meant sports cars and partying. And in my life now, it's changed slightly, you know? Your priorities change and, and everything else. So I'd say that having, you know, having goals is important and has probably helped, you know, having those goals kind of there has helped me pro provided some structure in terms of my own development, my career, my personal life. Um, but I would say that they have the con context, but the, the meaning of those goals has changed slightly as I've grown. Um, so I'd say that's one super important practice that I've had. That may have been a shit answer to your question. No, I think that's a great answer. I think, um, I think that's, that's very important. And, and I would also say selecting an objective. And I was talking with your producer about this before. I think that if I were to give one piece of advice to young people, because I think there's a lot of follow your dreams, and I see a lot of disappointed people. And I see a lot of people who, who follow the dream and follow the dream and then realize that maybe the dream wasn't actually what they wanted. And I think if at an earlier age, and I'm not saying at 11, but maybe at 21 or when you're kind of starting your first job or second job or finishing uni or whatever it is, decide kind of what it is you're going after. And that kind of goes back to me writing the goals down. And if that's financial objectives, great. Let it be those. Or if that's to, um, you know, be a, a part, part in a play, then let it be that. Or, but at least you have that kind of that, th that, that thing to help you provide you with a little bit of direction. Um, the thing is, if you don't have objectives that you're working towards, you can very easily get caught up in a vacuum and become very narrow and so focused on, uh, I haven't articulated this one, I actually want to answer this question again. For the record, you're I, I disagree with. No, 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 no. I, I, no, no. I, I, I would, disagree. I would I like to, doing it very well. I would like to frame it slightly differently yeah, yeah. because it's important. Because I know a range of people who, some of whom don't work, some of whom work in a whole range of different, different industries, but some of them are now, fifteen years into a career, a career they don't want, yeah. and have kind of, probably by most people's reckoning, done all right. Yeah. But are unfulfilled feel disappointed, haven't received the validation or recognition that they want, and are kind of having these conversations with people over beers or whatever, and they're going, well, if I went back, actually, I would have done it this way. And so I'm asking them questions like, do you, let me ask you a question. Do you want money? Do you want recognition in a certain field? Do you want, you know, validation by your peers or by the free press or... Do you want, you know, a whole load of gratuitous people? What, decide what it is you want. Now, I get it. As a young person, you may actually not know. But I was blessed. And I'd say I was blessed because I knew early that I was interested in the money. I wasn't interested in... But, but I, I also think... So I hope I'm not interjecting the form interject. too much. But I also think you, you recognise your skills early. I think that's the most important part. I think if I could... My... my frame of, of an element of that question it would be recognize your skills first and then start to discover what you like and what you care about and i think that's 100%, what you did. That's, 100%. That's completely what i think you did 100 percent. and i think that unfortunately kind of this this is a gen z yeah gen z, yeah, yeah yeah 16 to 25 yeah. It around. yeah yeah i think that um the kind of conflict between lots of different careers and things and to to build the ten thousand hour rule mm -hmm. is becoming increasingly difficult. Sure. For people to hone in on a skill set and then use it to the best 
possible ability. It's becoming almost, it's very difficult. And I know that from people I employ, from young people I interview. Well, there's, there's almost too many distractions. They're spoiled for choice yeah. in terms of, um, it's less about honing in on what you um, are good at and more doing you know, what you love in that moment mm. until Instagram throws up a new opportunity and you kind of, young people are jumping around a lot and I'm not sure it's to their, uh, potentially a little bit to their detriment. Yeah. It's just my opinion. No, no, I, I, I agree in the sense of I think there's, there's a danger that you can actually be over-inspired and then it's, it's a very roller coaster emotion. And it's something I'm, I'm actually focused on a bit within Babylonia in, in the sense we must be, even when we're talking now, which is why it's great, the way you're talking about things is we have to be realistic, like and and, and like be. I don't know if this will work in our favour, but we can't like overdo the real the realism, even business or whatever it is. In the sense, you know, there's inspirational quotes out there or videos that go and of I don't know Will Smith or whatever, and they're useful, but it's got and that and then as a result, the person goes, "I'm going to do what I love." Mm. In the next, but then they don't have that that energy doesn't last unless you really understand how realistic it is and, and how how up and down you are as a human being. Like today, this morning, last night was like. Good, good, good place. Wrote loads of stuff down. Did the usual things. Today, this morning, wasn't that up for it. Mm. But, but, but by the time I get here and I talk to you and we have a chat downstairs and everything else, these are all the components that people really need to really, really appreciate. I think. Hundred percent. I think you put it much better than I did. Um, <laughs> I think that. I think it's true. I think that energy can take you only so far until you fall back to what it is you really care about. Mm. A lot of people fall out of love with what they thought their passion was, and which mm. is fine, and that happens all the time. But I think if you have a constant, and that constant in the context of these kind of businesses you're having, more often than not, there's a salary. A lot of people are taking a lot of risks at a young age, and that's great. You should try things. To take, take the sort of risks now that you're not going to take once you have a wife and kids like I do. Now it's about, you know, how can I deliver a stable, you know, stable life? Um, but at the same time, be realistic. Um, you know, if you've done 10 years and you're not cracking it, potentially you might want to look at something else. I want to no, no, take, no. take that bit out because <laughs> really? I don't want to... No, no, no. I feel like I'm potentially demotivating people who no, are like, but, really... But no, but here's the point. I don't think you are because I think we are talking realistically. Like There is a chance that arguably I've been in a working life for 12 years, right? Mm. I'm 30 mm. now. It's only... I've known what I really wanted to do. Sorry for tapping the mic, by the way. I know I just did that. Um, I've realised what I wanted to do for a while. I've only put pen to paper in the past 6 to 12 months. Now yeah. I'd say I'm doing what I really yeah, want to do, right? It, it's, but that's cool. That's tentative. I'm thirty. Like it's not the end of the mm. world. Like people do that fifty. Yeah, yeah. And and but the point is the real. I think it's brilliant. brilliant. I'm proud of you for doing it. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I would I would tear up if you were on camera. Um, you're talking about just 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 to, just to, just to sort of continue with that. What's your constant then? You said you said you need certain constants. What's what's your constant? I'd say the most important thing to me in my professional life has been a salary. I think having a predictable income has been a very stabilizing factor for me and was one of the and first- And related to the rest of your life in a great, in, in a great way. And was, was, well, not initially. When I was initially being paid 12 grand to sell women's denim, I wasn't living a great life. But the mm. point is, for, you know, I suffer with ADHD and my thoughts are all over the place all of the time. And as a result, my life was for a lot of it all over the place all the time, high, low, all over the fucking place, unmanageable energy levels. And having that constant of a salary that I knew was coming in and the structure of knowing I had to turn up to work to get that salary, was massively stabilizing, anchoring in, a, in the best way possible in my life um, and provided me with structure and a foundation from which I built a proper career. And, and yeah, I mean, do, when you started your own business, did you find it hard to maintain structure because it's, it's not, you're not being paid by someone else? I, yeah. I, I found that a lot. I, 
yeah, I think that I launched my first business in the Middle East and the people that I'm working with, uh, the majority of whom are from India and Pakistan, the work ethic is something you won't find in the UK. They work morning till night. It's, when you get there, it's dark. When you leave, it's dark. Mm. And because I had those people around me, there wasn't, anything, there wasn't anything else. It was just work. And so because that was, you know, my learning, my foundation of launching a business was surrounded by not my mates and not, we, did, don't, do, we don't do work beers, we still don't at mm. that office. Mm. Um, that then, you can see how that sort of instilled a work ethic, which kind of carried through than what I've done ever since. Uh, so the, Although the, there is a lot more beer in the UK, and I'm not complaining. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how important is failure and trial and error to you? Everything. Well, you can't learn if you don't fail. I think it's just your ability to get back up and carry on. I agree. I totally agree. I also think I think there's, you learn you learn two, so, and and this is where I see crossover between kind of physical exercise and business. Is I think you learn. The most about yourself, one, when you get punched in the mouth, mm -hmm. and two, when you're absolutely physically exhausted, yeah. is when you find out who you actually are as a person. You learn about yourself more so than anything. You, you, all your emotions internally are exposed in a moment. And both of, I've had both of those things, and I've learned more about myself in those two moments than any other time in my life. Okay. And, and trial, and error, trial, trial and error with regards to products... Have you done much of that? Or I guess because you're playing, you're kind of choosing products that are already made. Or, well, or well, I guess in the in the sleep. Well, we're company, selling to very in particular. Well, we're selling to very regulated categories. Yeah, aerosol is our biggest selling product on in one business, and in, within sleep, we have to adhere to all of the the standards you would expect, whether sure. it be fire safety and health, whether it be um, stability. Um, we, all our products are tested to the highest, higher standards and have to comply with the various governing bodies. Uh, so we don't have a chance to trial it with consumers. Mm. We do run a load I of testing. In, 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 in the iteration sense. Oh, so yeah, we trial Pillow, for example. We trial the fragrances people give feedback. We do huge user trials, send them out to mm -hmm. 400, 500 people. Pillows is the same thing. Um, some of our osteos and chiros trial them on frontline patients to get feedback. Um, so we're constantly trialing, we're constantly testing new products, see what uh, people like that don't. Um, but once you bring it to market, it has to be the finished lab tested version. Talking about when, you, when you're identifying markets and the emerging bit, just, just to touch on that, you've also told me in the past about your interest in mature markets. Could mm -hmm. you just explain what you mean by mature markets and then why, why you tend to think that you can make an indent in a, in a product placement mm -hmm. sort of situation there? So I think that, let's talk about UK market, for example, 70 million people, Spoiled for choice, very few new categories popping up, tends to be just innovations on existing themes. So if you use sleep as an example, there's no shortage of pillows that you as a consumer can go out and buy between 20 and 200 pounds. Mm -hmm. But there's, education was lacking in, in sleep, and that's where, that's where we introduced Cali Sleep. So I think there's a lot to be said for innovating on the fringes of some of the more established categories. When I talk about mature markets, I talk about markets like the UK, like the US, deep infrastructure, lots of choice, high level of disposable income for the most part. And you're unlikely to be able to, to, to turn ahead unless you do something quite special. Mm. Whereas in the emerging markets, there are some very sort of sparsely populated or fragmented markets like India, for example, that has 1.2 billion people, 
It's a huge continent, very poor distribution infrastructure, very low average income, uh, where just by having a product in the market, there's probably going to be some interest. We're too smart here. So that's kind of how I separate the number of products available fine. within a given population. Fine, fine, fine. And uh, in terms of uh, innovation, I would say you stand a much greater chance of succeeding within emerging markets with a, with a simpler product just by having a decent offering broadly you know, available across the country mm. versus the UK where you know, we're very sophisticated consumers. We've all seen a lot of product, a lot of product shoved in our faces at all times, but you have to work extremely hard either on the product side or the communication side. We have capitalized on communication, using communication to build businesses here recently. Uh, whereas in emerging markets, it's been a straight distribution play. It's getting a good product, the best product, not knockout. This isn't rockets and space stuff, but getting it available across countries, lots of countries. Uh, Ori, you mentioned that you have ADHD. My sort of question to that would be, you've obviously, like you said, learned how, that if you write things down, it, it orders your thoughts a bit mm. more and therefore orders your life. How... Let's, I know you're not big on wanting to be cliche or sub stories, but how challenging has it been and what are the real learning curves needed to tackle something like ADHD mm. in, in a business sense and, and order within your life? I'd say, obviously for everyone it's different. And I'd say for me it's been more of a blessing than a curse, but it has made certain things incredibly difficult, like school, for example, absorbing large amounts of information. I could write them down 10 times I would remember them. I'd, I blank out after classes um, and I, I uh, and as a result it not my confidence thinking that I'd be terrible in some kind of professional environment or that it would impact my career terribly but I learned probably on my own to channel energy so sport was a really important outlet for me I had unmanageable energy I had some aggression problems as a result and very impulsive decision making and I was able successfully to channel it into sport rugby specifically and um, and kept that going as long as I could, um, and then just did regular did did regular exercise and um, found found ways of kind of getting rid of unwanted energy. So so, so physical uh, physical exercise that, is one particular tool. Hundred percent. I I say physical exercise is my main tool. I still train and try to every day. If only to keep the weight off because I eat my kids' food when we give them dinner. But <laughs> about 30 fish fingers a day. And, and, and the beer is obviously... Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, but I started writing things down religiously. So I use these black books and I fill them non-stop, constantly writing things down. Um, and I'd say between that, literally those two simple mechanisms helped me, helped me manage it. But it did, it has made, it made education very challenging. But... I feel like it's almost given me a little bit of an edge. First of all, my, my energy never ends. Mm. I can go on three hours sleep every night forever. Um, and, you know, my friends and family know this. Um, so I guess for me, it has worked. But then I have friends who really struggle, who do work kind of normal, I don't say normal jobs, but I mean of jobs that require them to absorb lots of uh, information. And they really, really struggle with it. So I did try medication for a time, but it wasn't for me. Um, really kind of sapped my energy, felt like I kind of, just my personality, I didn't feel like I was the same person. Mm. Uh, and had friends who did the same. Um, pro probably should have taken it for longer uh, because, uh, you know, failed all my, not failed my exams, but it was very, very average in school. 
Um, and if you were trying to pursue any other career route and you needed certain grades to get into certain universities, to get certain qualifications, be it, you know, doctorates or whatever, um, I think I really would have struggled. But at the same time, the tools of, regardless of exercise, writing things down in such a scheduled manner, that, that must hone in. For example, if you look at your concentration levels at 19 to now, it's so dramatically different. It must be this consistency of doing that every day that, that makes you... It stops you from losing focus. And the reason why I asked that, I just want to I want to elaborate a touch. Sorry, sorry, but I just want to elaborate. I do think it's good for people don't to... Don't apologise, Michael. No, no, but I, I don't like to interrupt people. And uh, it's very it's important that I let you flow as much as I can, can. But my point would be is, I feel if someone did have ADHD watching this, the fact that you have managed it without any sort of medication and you've used these tools, it's very important to really break down why that's helped so much. That's why I sort of... And see see if there's a considerable difference in your behaviour as a result purely through apply applied personal things as opposed to any medication. Yeah, I think no, it's a good question. I would say that it's about having healthy anchors for me, um, and I mean anchors in the most positive sense um, that provide structure for me to live my life. Um, in my life now, those structures are my business, writing things down, exercise, which is a key part of my day, and I don't I try not never to miss it. Um, but I would, I would also say that kind of having kids and a wife and the scheduling that goes on around that, because kids wake up at certain times, well, you hope they wake up at certain times. And all of those things provide a structure that I can exist kind of successfully within. Mm-hmm. Um, and without those kind of healthy anchors, as I call them, I, I think I'd still probably struggle and I'd still be as impulsive. But I do think that that impulsion has helped me make quick, reactive decisions in business to things that I've seen. Whereas some people might take a little bit more time, um, you know, and I do harp on about how data is so important in terms of decision making. <laughs> I'm kind of contradicting myself in saying that actually being impulsive and saying that's an opportunity to fucking go after it has actually helped me. So I don't, you know, I don't feel bad for having ADHD my whole life. If anything, I feel, you know, grateful, you know, slightly resentful of the challenges it gave me between the ages of sort of, you know, eight and 18. Yeah. But grateful overall um and and if there was any advice i could give and i'm not you know i'm not qualified to give medical advice but early uh, if you have children or if you're young and watching it if you're if you can identify it early you can get help early and help doesn't mean um medicine or pills it could mean like you said personal help exactly healthy anchors which by the way i think healthy anchors is such I would a have good lo- term 100 healthy anchors. i would have loved to have known earlier that i was suffering with adhd and not some kind of other medical problem mm-hmm. because for so long I had these uh, outbursts and just you know just crazy energy and distractibility and just, you know, just lacking the ability to absorb information and I thought for a long time something was wrong but couldn't put my finger on it nor mm-hmm. could my parents mm-hmm. so I think that now that we know that ADHD is a thing and so many people have it and to varying degrees and I wouldn't even say mine mine is probably you know mine's not to you know serious extreme thankfully but um, uh, you can fix it and you can work through it Lots of, I'm sure there's lots of information available. But it's true. It's true. I think. I think the point in particular that's so good to hear is that you are not even necessarily too frustrated that you have it because you recognise that there's some qualities that might actually help. And I think mm. that point of view is is so useful, to, especially to someone who's younger and, and listening in. Um, just to, we're going to finish with a few quick fiery type questions. Let's do it. Um, favorite book. I've read one. Yeah, I, I thought you might say that. <laughs> <laughs> you've read a few books now or just you, you think because if you're honest what the concentration span's not there 
Audiobooks? I read Lest We Forget, African Slavery and Emancipation book. And any it doesn't, any it useful takeaways? Yeah, any useful takeaways. Uh, By the way, if you if you just don't have a particular book that you, there is a useful takeaway, you don't. Have I, to would say, I would say, the, <laughs> I would say that I would say that my long term goal is to try and help in my small way to end poverty globally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've worked with my family on a charity in Africa and saw kind of firsthand how you know the life these children are born into and. Um, no child deserves to be born into that. And like I said before, you're lucky enough to get ahead in life, whether by your own, you know, success or, you, you know, you, you, had, you had a hand. I, I think you owe it to turn around and help other people out. And if there's one thing I really, really want to do when all this business rubbish is said and done, it would be to try and use it to kind of, you know, for good and, and help other people. It was amazing. Um, we haven't done it yet, but, well, no, but, well, we, are no, start, no, but we are starting. We are starting. No, but the fact, the fact that that's, you're conscious of that now is, is great because obviously yeah, that's you know, you're, long, long you're not goal. even really mid midterm for your well, work it would be, career. It, I think it would be selfish of me to have enjoyed and have capitalised on all this kind of travelling and stuff that I've done in emerging markets and in mm-hmm. parts of the world who suffer so much at the hands of you know poverty and illness and all this stuff, and not turn around and try and help them kind of uh, prosper. Yeah, like you said, you've seen it firsthand, which is which is so important. Um, favorite movie? I'm so bad at quick fire questions. We'll, we'll take your time. All right. Notting Hill. Hundred percent Notting Hill. What am I talking about? All those Richard Curtis. Those are my favorite films. Notting Hill. Four Weddings and a Funeral. Bridget Jones Diaries. All of them done. Okay. Next. <laughs> so basically, he's into rom coms. Um, Is that a rom com? Well, Notting Hill is a rom com. Four and, Weddings. And Bridget, Bridget Jones. Bridget Jones is. Four Weddings quite a serious film. Rom-com, I feel. You obviously it's don't ba- remember the funeral. Oh, four weddings. Oh, four weddings and a funeral. Okay, yeah, I, I don't remember that one. Yeah. Right. Um, any brands you particularly admire? Brands. Brand, brands or businesses? This is, this is a lot. Gone. Wrong guy to ask this no, question. No, not wrong. Um, I say for for the purpose of your viewers, uh, I think no. Lululemon have done the most formidable job of innovating at uh, sort of in what was such a you know, clutter category. Um, I think athleisure wear. Um, I think they're just they're amazing. Um, personal care space. Uh, I love Axe and Links. Um, I think they've done a great job. Not so much on the fragrance side, but definitely on the distribution side. Okay. And I would also say that I love. So if I could have ever owned one brand ever, it would be Pseudo Creme. <laughs> okay, why? one product it's one formulation it's like 40 years old it's never changed mm. you can use it for anything literally anything trust me I've tried <laughs> do you want to elaborate on that <laughs> well I've got kids now and I know I use it for them okay fine and I've used it for uh, I can't I it's, it's reasons, unlimited yeah. uses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay so so longevity and the fact that you haven't had to compromise at all just the whole the whole way it's just it's, it's, the formulation is unbelievable yeah it's unbelievable Pseudochrome I'd love to have owned. And I also, you see, I told you, you shouldn't have asked me. No, now I, keep going, keep going. Another brand I love is... Now, these are all brands you wouldn't know. Well, but what I would say is I'm sure some people would, and maybe explain one or two of them and why and what, what's their piece in the market, which hmm. made you appreciate it. Well, I told you Lululemon and why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but these ones we, we wouldn't know 
Yeah. Is um, there anyone that would be explainable to, to say in layman's terms or something? Well, something? it's all female intimates products like tampons and stuff, so I don't really want to Okay, that's fine. I don't really do. want to do that. Okay, fine. We'll move on. Don't, don't put the brands piece in it. Uh, no, no, I think it's good. Right. Uh, who, does I it, do like is there anyone you, you idolize in any sense of the word? No. Why not? Like yourself, bro. So there's no one you look at. I take inspiration. Yeah. As in, so within my sphere of influences, there are a few key kind of standout figures. They're not necessarily people you know. I look up to a lot of sportsmen, especially. Uh, endurance sports people. For what reason? I've done, uh, I've had failed attempts at Ironmans. Um, I've done probably six or seven marathons. I'm not built for it. You only have to look at me to know that. I'm not, not built for a lot of sports. <laughs> <laughs> um, most recently, I've been inspired by Ross Edgley, who did the Great British Swim, which is like a 400-day swim around the UK. Mm-hmm. And I just think... There is so much to be learned from the mindset you need to develop to become a, an endurance athlete of any kind. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's amazing. So a lot of sports people I take inspiration from, uh, a few business people. I love the relationship that Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have and what they've both done. Um, I love the fact that if you ask them what's the most important thing in life, they'd say having good friends, valuing other humans and that human engagement interaction, which I thrive off. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I don't know where I'd be without my mates. Um, don't know if you feel the same. No, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think I think it's I think it's not to, it not to be knocked at all that 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 how valuable that is to, yeah. to to the rest of your life. And whereas I thought when I was younger, it's all about business and just you've got to be this cold, carted businessman and just focus on your goals and it's just about commercial and financials. It's so not. I think you live a much healthier and happier existence. If you surround yourself with positive, good people, um, it's like the family you choose, as yeah. opposed to the family it's, it's, you it's don't. It's totally choose. true. It's like, I don't know if you see this, but you know sometimes on stuff <clears> on Instagram, people are like be prepared to lose a few few friends if you're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. That's one of the one sort of quotes out of those, you know, those bullet points for for success that I don't like because yeah. I, because I think maybe I haven't actually heard it, but I don't agree with it. Yeah, I, don't, I just like. Maybe me and you are more fortunate that we, for whatever reason, we, we've had <coughs> situations where we, we've created almost brotherhoods with certain friends. But. 100%. You know, my mum actually harps on the whole time. My whole life she's gone, um, you know, love is the most important thing, love is the most important thing. You know, yeah. I always think of that song, love, love. Actually, she's probably right because no one wants to go through life by themselves. Couldn't agree with you more. And if by that quote they meant lose a few people who bring negative energy or anything into your life, then maybe I do agree. But if they're supportive friends who are positive, hang on to them. Because you only get so many. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I, as, uh, I mean, I can only speak for myself, yeah. but I wouldn't have it anyway. Well, I, I would maybe slightly elaborate and say, I think the point they try and make is you, you probably have to limit your friends group. But still, even that, I agree, you're not going to be, you're not going to be best friends with 20 people. But to suggest that you can only have I just, I'd find it a funny, funny I think phrase, as you get you know? older, the windows you're working with, you only have so much time to invest in so many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the people that want to be in your life typically make an effort to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're sharing positive energy and there's no harm done, of course, there's going to be friends you see more and friends you see less. But I don't think there's any harm in having great people around you. I think there's only good things to come by it. And it's interesting how it all balances out. Mm. I can only see positive things. Yeah, I, I, I really do.
do agree with you on that one. All right, I think that's it. I think we're good. Well, how we, how long are we in? About an hour and something? Brilliant. All right, well, Ori, thank you very much for taking the time to do it. It was really, really good, really fascinating. Some great insights, and I hope it, hope it helps people. That's another episode of the Entrepreneur's Experience with Babylonia Media. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. And uh, I look forward to seeing you become a huge success in the podcast space. It's not just the podcast space. That's all I'll say. <laughs>